Welcome, everybody. Delighted to have you. And we're so happy to have Shonda Pierce with us, filling in for Keith Bilbrey. No telling what is going to happen tonight with Shonda in the house. That is for sure. But Shonda, we are very happy you're here. Welcome. Don't mess this up. <laughs> I'm going to do my best. What, to mess it up? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, let me just begin by saying that on a bitterly cold January night 12 years ago, I won the Iowa caucuses. Yeah. Now, it really was a substantial victory, one that shocked the so-called professionals of the press, all of whom expected Mitt Romney to win. I beat him by nine points. Yeah. I might not have gotten that big of an applause over that until this week when he did his little vote, but that's a whole other story for another time. Well, a week later, John McCain won in New Hampshire, and the week after that, he and I were locked in a dead heat in South Carolina. He had really strong support in the low country around Charleston. My strongest support was in the upstate around Greenville and Spartanburg. Then a rare snow blanketed the upstate, and McCain who had said he'd drop out if he lost in South Carolina, squeaked past me to win two of the three early contests. Now, even though I won the majority of states on Super Tuesday, by then, the press decided it was over. And as they reported it that way, contributions to my campaign disappeared and flowed freely to his. Things might have been very different had I won the first two of three, but maybe not. Now, the purpose of this intensely personal story is to say that this week, when Democrats caucus to select their 2020 nominee, you're going to hear many of the pretty talking heads who play political experts on TV say that Iowa, our New Hampshire, our South Carolina, and Nevada, which are the first four contests, that they really don't mean that much. But the difference between those people and me, I've actually competed in the arena and played the game. They've only watched from the comfort of the press box. But I promise you that the early contests do matter. If someone, whether it's Bernie the Socialist or Biden the Confused, or, or Warren, who isn't sure of her ethnicity, or Buttigieg, who has jumped from a small town mayor to presidential candidate, if any one of them win two or three of the first four contests, you are most likely looking at the Democrat nominee. It's not going to matter that billionaire Michael Bloomberg bought the top 200 feet of every radio and TV tower in the nation. It won't matter that Amy Klobuchar or Tulsi Gabbard actually make more sense and fit the profile of a more moderate but still all-important female candidate. And even if Andrew Yang promises to give everyone in America a thousand bucks, as he promises, despite the fact that he'd actually be giving you your own money, <laughs> they will be effectively finished. And it's not because they're bad candidates or actually couldn't win, but the media will declare someone the frontrunner and the presumptive nominee, and they, and not the voters, will narrow the field. So watch carefully what happens in the early states to see who the Democrats will make their starting quarterback. And while the Democrats are trying to pick their own nominee, they have been busier than ever in Washington trying to keep you from picking the Republican nominee. It's not just that their every breath 
has been spent trying to impeach and ultimately remove President Trump so as to overturn the 2016 election that they're still whining about. It's that they would also love to remove him from being able to be the Republican nominee in 2020. Chew on that for a moment. They're not content to pick their candidate. They want to pick the Republican candidate as well. So if you really want to put these guys in charge of anything else in Washington, you're going to have to explain that to me. But know that for all the drama and all the blowhards in Congress and on TV telling you who will win, they really know very little. And they usually get it all wrong. And never forget, no matter how much the elites in Congress and the media want to cancel your vote, want to call you ignorant hillbillies and laugh at you to your face, it's your vote that still decides it. So vote and drive the media. <laughs> drive the media and the snobs who look down their noses at you even nuttier than they already are. My first guest is a political talk show host and a former liberal who says free speech is under attack by the regressive left. He says they're less tolerant than any conservative he's ever met. And he also believes Democrats are bowing to the most extreme elements of their party and will destroy it. Would you please welcome Dave Rubin, host of The Rubin Report. Dave, it's an honor to have you here. I'm gonna jump right into this and, and let's talk about what has happened to the Democrat Party or the left or to the progressive movement, it seems like they've, they've truly gone off the deep end. I think you as a conservative and most conservatives want a decent left. You, you want to have intellectual arguments with good liberals. And by the way, there is a history of good liberals in the country that you may have differences of opinions with, but that fundamentally believe that America is a good place and that the Constitution is a wonderful governing document and things like that. What's happened in the last, say, six or seven years is that the progressive movement, which really is socialism, just masked as democratic socialism or whatever they're calling it, which, by the way, they're going to they're going to axe the word democratic uh, by the next election cycle. I mean, they're they're basically admitting they're socialists at this point, the, the Bernie and Elizabeth Warren wing of this thing. Uh, they've decided that not only is the government the end-all authority on virtually everything, uh, but that also, and this is the, the really sort of uh, perverse part of this, that every one of their intellectual opponents, be it a conservative, a libertarian, an old-school liberal, virtually anyone who doesn't bow to all of their authority is somehow a bigot or a racist or a homophobe or anything else. And for me, as someone that was a lefty my whole life, I mean, I, I was part of this thing, uh, my political awakening, as I've, as I've talked about it and met more people in the middle of the country and talked to 14,000 people at Liberty University, I mean, I never would have thought I would have ever spoke there years ago, and met just dozens and hundreds and thousands, actually, because I was on tour last year with Jordan Peterson, thousands of people all over the world who I have some political disagreements with but are happy to agree to disagree and want to live in a pluralistic society. And unfortunately, that's just not where the left is right now. I'm curious, what was the turning point for you? When was it that you uh, one day said, these people have, have gone off and left me? It's a bridge too far. You know, there were, there were several moments that I started thinking something is wrong here. 
about five years ago, I was on air at the Young Turks, and they're a far, less, far left progressive network. That was the network I was working for. And they were showing a clip of Fox News. And, and you must know David Webb over there, right? You yes. You must know David. I do. David is a good man. He's a conservative. He happens to be black. And I say happens to be black because that, that it doesn't define him. It's one of the characteristics about him, that he's a conservative. Yeah. So he became a good friend of mine. And then it's a few years later. I'm on air at the Young Turks. And they see, David, I think, was guest hosting for Sean Hannity that night. And they're playing clips of him. And they're talking about how he's, he's an Uncle Tom. He's a sellout. He's a grifter. He doesn't believe anything he's saying. How could he do this to black people? And suddenly it, it was so stark. It, it hit me in the most clear possible way that these people who purport to be for di diversity and purport to be for tolerance and the rest of it, they see a black man who doesn't think the way they want him to think, and suddenly they can apply all of the worst labels that you could possibly say about anybody to him. And I thought, David's not the racist here. It's actually you guys. So this is the bizarre reality that the left has created. They, they're for groups. And every time you're for a group, you actually crush the individual. And I'm for individuals. I believe that you can uh, know and control and live the best life for yourself. And, and that, that's a bottom-up way of looking at the world, and they want a top-down way of looking at the world. You really, I, I think, hit a nerve when you were talking about the fact that the left likes to look at people in groups. And I've often said, as long as the left can keep people in their group, they can win, because all they've got to do is keep the groups grouped up together. Uh, conservatives, we yep. tend to see people as individuals. We don't see them as black or white or, or gay or uh, Presbyterian or Jewish. We tend to see them as individuals. This is the problem, that once you start viewing people as, as the collective, you're unable to uh, understand that they might have differences with you because you've defined them already. And what I would rather do, and, and I think conservatives have been very good at this in the last couple of years, is say, I don't care what your sexuality is, I don't care what your gender is or your skin color or the rest of it, do you have good ideas and can we work together to, to hopefully create a society that's truly tolerant for as many people as possible? And that's why I consistently find myself bu building bridges in places that I, I didn't think would have existed a couple of years ago. Uh, one bridge that may have been broken down is the bridge in Congress between Democrats and Republicans over impeachment. Assess for us what this impeachment process has done to America and whether it will help or hurt the Democrats in this country. The framers were deeply, deeply worried about what just happened. What just happened was the House, on a purely partisan basis, decided to assault another branch of government. The legislative branch decided to attack the executive branch, the, the branch of the presidency, on a partisan nature. This is, this is deeply, deeply dangerous because what it leads to is the idea that no election will truly ever matter. That if you ever get your, the opposition voted in as the executive, as the president, that if you have a partisan legislative branch that wants to take him or her out, that they will go ahead and do it. So there, it's deeply dangerous. And, and to answer your, your subsequent question, um, this idea that this is going to somehow help the Democrats is completely crazy because if you ever wanted to fire up all of the base, all of the Trump voters, if you wanted to make sure because, you know, sometimes in a re-election cycle they, the base doesn't come out again um, or maybe it just doesn't have as much excitement as it did the first time. But if, if you want to fire up those people, what do you do? 
you, you do this crazy partisan impeachment. Now all of those people come out. And then there's another piece of this that I haven't heard people talking about on, on cable news, which is I think that there's a certain amount of people that are somewhat apolitical, but they don't like the idea of all the government nonsense and we're going to destroy everybody and the rest of it. And they actually do want to defend the office of the presidency. And I think those people now are going to break for Trump as well. So I think the Democrats are really going to regret this. And not only that, you know, AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I, I disagree with on virtually every policy issue, she actually made a decent point about a week or two ago. She said that basically she and Joe Biden shouldn't be in the same party. And I think she's right. The socialists and whatever last remaining old school liberal there is should not be in the same party anymore. And I think aided by impeachment, I think all of this could potentially lead to the end of the Democratic Party and, and sort of a real split between the socialists and whatever is left of, of the old school Democrats. Well, Dave Rubin, thank you so much. Quite frankly, I, I think if we couldn't watch all of this this year for free, we'd all buy tickets. It would be worth it. <laughs> Delighted to have you. Thank you. Governor, thank you very much. Our thanks to Dave Rubin, host of The Rubin Report, which you can find at rubinreport.com. Also, follow Dave on social media. Also, that's at Rubin Report. Now, if you're looking for more of my take on the news of the week, be sure and watch Facts of the Matter. It's after the show on Huckabee.tv. I hope to see you there. Well, Keith is off this week, but we have a very talented and glamorous celebrity announcer tonight. The always entertaining Shonda Pierce is here. Hey, Shonda, what's coming up on the show tonight besides your wonderful punchline? I love that glamorous. Coming up, inspiring advocate Rebecca Bender. Then, my very hilarious stand-up routine. Well, at least I think it's hilarious. Plus, author and pastor Dr. Robert Jeffress. And welcome back. My first guest was forced into the brutal sex trafficking trade in Las Vegas. But after six years, she escaped and then committed herself to help rescue other victims. Her incredible story is entitled In Pursuit of Love, One Woman's Journey from Trafficked to Triumphant. Would you please welcome a remarkable person with an incredible story, Rebecca Binder. Rebecca, thank you for coming. Delighted to have you. I'm always amazed how people are first drawn into human trafficking, because I think sometimes we think it's some 14-year-old some from uh, the Orient, you know, that gets picked up and uh, shipped to the United States. You grew up playing varsity sports. You were an honor student. How in the world did a kid like you end up getting part of the sex trafficking business? Yeah, you're right. It, we all have these misconceptions about human trafficking to be stranger danger and kidnapped children locked in rooms. But in our country, that doesn't sell, right? Sexy mm. sells. And so what happens is traffickers take a lot of time to groom and manipulate, and they're playing a long con game to get to know their victims, mm. and then they force them into the world of, of commercial sex. In your case, it was a, a boyfriend. Yeah, a guy. I mean, he, he pretended he was. Yeah, exactly. He pretended to be my boyfriend. I was yeah. a single mom, young 19-year-old mom trying to put myself through school. 
and he had all the answers. He, he was ambitious and he had all these dreams to help get me out of this small town. And I thought finally maybe the tables had turned for me and mm. I fell in love. I didn't know the whole time he was a con artist. Traffickers purposefully target vulnerable populations. Mm. And in my case, I was the girl on campus with a kid. And I found out many years later that he actually gave his phone number or took phone numbers to lots of girls on campus that seemed maybe vulnerable or at risk. But it's the ones that he seems to get his hook in that he keeps continually, continually grooming. Did you not see warning signs? And I guess the reason I'm asking is for all those other kids out there that might be the target of a predator, what should they look for? What did you miss in this guy? Um, frequent trips out of town, a gradual expansion of my boundaries, um, seclusion from family and friends. I think in healthy relationships, our circles should double, right? You're getting yeah. to know each other's friends and family. But in, in very dangerous relationships, your circles become smaller and become more isolated. Mm. And my family started seeing signs and they thought, what's going on? No small town family thinks human trafficking. They yeah. thought, is she in domestic violence? Is she, is she a stripper? What's going on? Something's not right. And eventually my mom started calling 911 and they would say, I'm sorry, ma'am, without an address, there's nothing we can do. And she said, that's part of the problem is I don't even know their address. My daughter and my granddaughter are missing. You were in Las Vegas six years, finally a federal raid uh, at the place where you were freed you, let you go. Since that time, you've, uh, you've started reaching out to other women and trying to help them. You've trained 100,000 plus law enforcement, emergency room personnel, FBI, Homeland Security people. That's a pretty big give back. What made you wanna <laughs> give back of yourself to help in those ways? I, I can remember sitting in my living room or my kitchen at the table and I can remember the sun coming up and feeling kind of sick to my stomach and thinking mm -hmm. time to go in. And I remember the voice of God saying to me, how can you sit here and do nothing? How can you sit here in your nice cuppy house with your warm cup of coffee when you know what it's like to be more afraid to go home? I first just started sharing my story, just wanting to kind of sound the alarm, and it grew rapidly, and, and I've been so thankful to be able to train so many law enforcement officers, vice cops, work cases. Rebecca, how did you manage the reentry from the life of being a sex slave and essentially being a piece of property for somebody to now having a wonderful husband, for daughters, a, a pretty nice life, other than when you go out there and have to relive it by teaching people what to look for. How was the reentry accomplished for you? I mean, it was really hard, of course. I think anytime someone tries to completely change their life, it's not easy. It's not this, you know, fairy godmother moment where it's bibbity no. bobbity boo and you're out. <laughs> um, when the feds raided one of the homes, it was in a, it took nine more months after that till I was finally able to run. And it was me packing up my daughter in the middle of the day and grabbing her and jumping on a plane. And that's why part of me went back to train law enforcement because they, they needed to know I felt like if they knew what was really going on, that they would help. And for just so long, I think cops didn't know, and they just thought, oh, criminal prostitutes. And they didn't really look behind what may be going on behind closed doors. You've written this book in, called In Pursuit of Love. Why the title? I was a girl who pursued love in all the wrong places. I was an average all-American girl, but I still had vulnerabilities. Even good home kids from good homes still have yeah. vulnerabilities. And that led me to... Um, eventually a, a place where bad guys pursued me, and I didn't know it, but through it all, God continued to tap on my shoulder mm. and try to get my attention, and so 
kind of finally at the end, I, I ran and left everything and technically chose homelessness wow. with an eight-year-old little girl because I wanted to know why I lived when others had died. Oh. And, um, and so we titled it Pursuit and it expanded to Pursuit of Love because it encompasses so much of all of that spectrum. You know, it's a beautiful story because of the way it ended, but sadly, there are many women in this country and many young girls and adolescents for whom this is not ending well. What's your message to them, Rebecca? Beyond just being a girl's issue, there's a demand for sex in our country that is, ra that is raising up this kind of demand. So we have to teach our, our sons to honor, protect, defend, not objectify and exploit. And we have to teach our young girls that there is community and there is belonging and they are worthy far beyond just their looks or what social media likes they get. Um, I think it's, it's about really helping the next generation do something better than we've done. That's a beautiful reminder that it's also about the guys learning to honor and respect and treat women as persons and not objects. What a, what a wonderful reminder of that. And I tell you, I hope people will get the book, especially uh, if you're a father or a mother of a daughter. And uh, even if you're father or mother of a son, but especially of a daughter, to learn how to protect your own daughter or your granddaughter. The book is called In Pursuit of Love. It's available at Amazon. You can also find the book and learn how you can invite Rebecca to come speak to your group. Uh, that's at her website, RebeccaBender.org. Follow her on Instagram at I am Rebecca. That's for I'm Rebecca Bender. Now, Shonda Pierce is going to tell you all about the entertaining guests that we have coming up next. So, Shonda, I'm going to let you take it away. Thank you, Governor. Up next, I take over the stage, so buckle your seatbelt. Then author and TV host Dr. Robert Jeffress and country music legend John Conley share stories on his legendary career right here on Huckabee. Thank you for joining us tonight. Now my next guest and our special announcer tonight is the record industry's top-selling female comic of all time, period. And her new movie called Roll With It is coming soon, but right now she's here to make us laugh. I want you to please welcome one of our favorites and regulars. Would you welcome the one and only Shonda Pierce. Accolade. And this is the truth, Governor. When they gave me the award as the most awarded female comic in history, I was shocked, which means I've been doing this way too long. But also, they had a little party for me, and they read the proclamation, the people that gave you the gold records, the platinum records, and all this stuff. And when they finished reading it, I said, I just think that's so hard to believe because there's like Ellen DeGeneres and Joan Rivers. I just don't know how this happened. He goes, I know. We did the math twice because we ain't never heard of you. <laughs> I'm like, well, if you ain't never been to a Baptist potluck, you wouldn't be familiar with my stuff. <laughs> I am so honored to have been doing this for 25 years, and I just can't believe it. Don't clap. I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm old. I'm getting cranky. I'm not funny anymore. I'm just bitter. <laughs> but then you laugh, so you're sick. <laughs> that 
and I'm single now, so this, you know, getting out and working is interfering in my dating life because I'd like to talk about my dates on stage. <laughs> and evidently, all of a sudden, the men are all sensitive again. <laughs> I don't know why I can't talk about the hair in your ear. That... I will, that's, I will say that has slowed down my parking. I don't go parking with a boy that's got hair just pouring out of his ear. <laughs> Two teenage girls just vomited right there in the middle of the studio. You know, it's so much fun at my age. Let's tell the truth. The, the young kids out there, they think they're the little cute, sexy ones all the time. They, I love to talk about sex at my age because it just makes them vomit. <laughs> I tell parents all the time, you're having a hard time getting your kids to rope in some boundaries to coming in on time. What you need to do is when those teenagers walk by in your living room, you start making out with their daddy on the couch. <laughs> they will go in their room and they won't come out for four years. <laughs> that's some parenting skills right there that's probably James Dobson wouldn't agree with, but <laughs> it worked for us. My son is 30. I can't get him out of his room. <laughs> Y'all, and the hard part, no matter how you raise him, sometimes you, well, you just got no say. My son, and I'm sure he's not watching. <laughs> my son is a millennial snowflake. I don't know how that happened. How did that boy grow in my womb? How did this happen? I prayed over him. I sang over him even before he ever came into this world. And now here, I've given him everything, every car he ever wanted. He's never had to work a day in his life. He just, he, he gets everything handed to him on a silk. Oh, maybe that's why he's a Bernie Sanders fan. I, I, <laughs> becoming very clear now. That and it's hard. I've been widowed for five years. Some of you know that. And I've, I've kind of been dating. Okay, I had two dates. But, uh, <laughs> and the first one croaked right in the middle of the date. That was awful. <laughs> you know, when they have on their online picture that oxygen tube under their nose, <laughs> I guess you probably should take that serious. But... I thought it was joking, you know, and I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I will ever marry again because now at this stage in my life, I've got a CPAP machine. That's so sexy. <laughs> I had to have the test. This is the truth. I went to do the sleep test where the doctor watches your sleep, listens to your sleep. I was like, well, record it. We could, you know, I talk in my sleep. I could have ended my career, but anyway. <laughs> But I had to do the sleep test. My score, 30 is severe sleep apnea. I scored 71. <laughs> I know, she says I was an overachiever. <laughs> and so now I have the whole CPAP thing and I told the Lord, there's just no way I will ever get married again and, you know, have an intimate moment. <laughs> Especially if he's got the tube under his nose. <laughs> we could get tangled up in our tubes. <laughs> We could be wild and nasty and not even try. <laughs> Yo, it's just awful. And you have that on. It's like if a man rolls over and sees me and that is like sleeping with an astronaut. 
It's, this is the truth. I got this thing on my face, and then it takes all day long for it look like you haven't been scuba diving. Because it's sucked to your face, and you got this big hickey all the way around. To be honest with you, I really don't need to get married again. I'm rather enjoying the CPAP machine, to tell you the truth. <laughs> Just the kind of chick I am. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you tonight. I think you scared. Look, I lost my little thing. I feel oh, like well, you Secret need that. Service. It's not something you get with a CPAP machine. It doesn't come with that. <laughs> this is the truth. So once you get the CPAP machine, you got the ones that can get right on your nose, so you can look like Bozo in the night. <laughs> and then, or you can get the little plastic ones that goes all the way across there. So then you wake up with this indentation, and it looks like I've had work done, but I really haven't. It's... <laughs> I'm not putting cheeks in. I'm trying to get some <laughs> cheeks out, so. Since the last time we have visited on the show, yes. you've been involved in uh, a movie? I did. I and shot I... a major motion picture. That's exciting. And it's, it's, it's a story that you wrote several years yes. ago. And now it's going to be, when is it coming out? It comes out in the fall called Roll With It. Uh, I wrote it with my husband many, many years ago, and it's been circulating around. And then wonderful Chris Dowling, a great director and screenwriter, he put it all together for us really well. But I wrote it that I was a Walmart greeter, uh -huh. and I have to win a karaoke contest because my house has fallen in a sinkhole. And... <laughs> it's not that your house falling in a sinkhole is funny, but it's just somehow the plot, you know, i got to yes. be honest with you, that's funny. It's a very spiritual. Yeah, okay. It I will try started to cry. out, well, we filmed it in August here in Nashville, oh. which was part of the deal. It was so hot. hot. So it started out faith-based, but in that heat, my faith <laughs> got weak. <laughs> but it, it, so we couldn't get Walmart on, on board. I even tried, you know, I talked to yeah. your son. Yeah. Going, Do you know anybody out there in Arkansas? We didn't want, they didn't want to be a part of it. So evidently they're real picky about who wears their best. <laughs> 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 I know, my, my politics has excluded me on many things, but I had so much fun doing the movie. We changed it to where I'm a waitress at the Biscuit Barrel. The Biscuit Barrel. Because <laughs> we tried Cracker Barrel, but you know, they heard about my cooking, so. You know what's, what's sad? When you said the biscuit barrel, it sounds like the kind of place I'd like to go eat. It, it was a, a wonder. We built a whole restaurant. Everything. Oh. It was wonderful. And then I, we couldn't do the sinkhole because that's evidently so expensive to film. So we just mm. did that. I was losing it to taxes and all that. Oh, and you know, here's the funny thing. We did this part where David, where I talked to my dead husband and everybody thinks I'm crazy because, <laughs> you know, and I thought, well, that's realistic. <laughs> but my husband wrote that part yeah. when he was living. And now he's not. Huh. And, so, wow. I'm not doing anything he ever wrote again. <laughs> but real quickly, I brought you a present because I did. I you missed you at Christmas present. time. I did because we're get getting ready to up? go to Israel again. You know. Yeah, we are. Which is my favorite thing. And <laughs> I love this. There's it's two. a yarmulke that says, "Make America Great Again." <laughs> I love it. And you got your socks. Okay. 
Oh. And you got Trump socks. How about that? Some hairy socks. Now you know I've got to wear all that when I go. Yes, I can't wait, because I'm going with you. This will be our well, I know. third time together. Absolutely. I, I just don't even want to go without you anymore. You're so much fun to take we to do. Israel. We do but have I so can't, much fun. I just wonder if I'll get beat up if I wear this at the Western Wall. No, they love us there. Okay. They like us a lot better than America likes us right now. Well, they don't like us that much in a lot of places here. But you know what? We love you. We're so happy you're here. Thank you. And uh, glad you're filling in for Keith. We're going to have I a great know, time. I know. I'm loving this. I really enjoy it. <laughs> I, if you love to laugh and be inspired, hey, you got to follow Shonda Pierce on Facebook and Twitter so you'll keep getting her in trouble. <laughs> you do that at Shonda Pierce right there on your screen. Also, get her DVDs, her books, and tour schedule online at Shonda.org. And watch for the film, Roll With It. It's coming to a theater near you this fall. Hey, Shonda, if it's not too much pressure having you sit right next to me, go ahead and tell everybody what's coming up. Don't do the work right now. Coming up, best-selling author and pastor, Dr. Robert Kempris. Later, it's the country music legend, John Conley, right here on Huckabee. Welcome back to the show. A big hand for Trey Corley and the Music City Connection. Well, my next guest is a best-selling author. He's a TV commentator. He's the host of Pathway to Victory that you see right here on TBN. He's also the senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, one of the largest churches in the entire world. His latest book is called Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. And that is for sure a hostile world. Would you please welcome my very good friend, Dr. Robert Jeffress. Hey, it's good to Dr. Jeffress, welcome. Thank you. I'm not sure how to follow Shonda and the CPAP machine. You, you I can't do it. Follow that. You just have to pretend you it have to never be courageous. happened. It yeah. never happened. You've written 26 books, yeah. which is just amazing in itself, all the things that you do. But this book, very timely. A lot of people are fearful. They're living in fear. You tell people, be courageous. How do they do that? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, C.S. Lewis once called this world enemy-occupied territory. Well and you said. know, if you're uh, trying to live out your faith, you're in enemy-occupied territory. You have uh, incoming from every direction. Uh, you have it from without coming at you. The culture we're living in is increasingly at odds with God. You've got uh, attacks from within, your own sin nature that drags you down continually. And if that were not enough, we have an adversary from below who has a plan to destroy everything important to us. And yet God calls us to live out our faith courageously. And what I did, Governor, in this book was I took 10 survival tactics. Mm. The survivalists tell us we need to use if we're in an airplane crash or in an avalanche, things like don't panic, remember your training, do the next right thing. I took those 10 survival tactics huh. and applied them to how Christians can live out their faith, not just to survive, but to thrive. You know, Jesus said, in this world, you'll have tribulation, 
but take courage, for I have overcome the world. It's easy to tell people not to panic, but if the plane is going down, yeah. they're going to panic. That's so right. how do they not panic when all they can see is disaster ahead? You know, studies show that when people are in a situation like that, 10% uh, engage in flight, and the other 10% they fight, but 80% freeze. They mm. just get panicked. And the kind of uh, situations I'm talking about, it may not be an airplane uh, a tr crash, but when you get a report from the doctor yeah. that your case is terminal, or your mate tells you they don't love you any longer, mm. or your boss tells you your services are no longer needed, the easy thing to do is to freeze. But I use the story of Joshua. You know, God told Joshua as he was about to take over from Moses, he panicked. Hmm. And the Lord said, be not fearful, be not dismayed, take courage. And he showed him three things he needed to do to believe in God's promises, God's presence, and God's commands. God said, no matter what situation you're in, I will neither leave you nor will I forsake you. You have been very, very vocal and active speaking out on a lot of the, and I, I would not say political issue, but moral issues. Yeah. Is it problematic for some people in the church world when they see you speaking out on issues that they will say, oh, that's political, he shouldn't go there. We're in an increasingly uh, dark world, I believe. I'm grateful, as you know, for this president, but I believe this is a respite, this is a pause. I think the left will get in control again at some point, and I believe they're gonna come after Christians like they never have before. You see it today in the culture. The left not only wants to get to share their viewpoint, we're all for that. They wanna silence your right and my right to voice our perspective as well. And that's one reason I wrote this book, Courageous. Well, a person who is- better be ready for the attack. But a person who's a believer really has to be courageous to speak out because people, they don't wanna just say, you're wrong. They wanna put you out of business. We're living in a cancel culture. How do we deal with that? Well, I think we have to remember that we serve and live for an audience of one. I tell a story in the book about my first brush with having to decide whether I was gonna be courageous or not. I was in high school. I was president of our 3,000 member student body. And one of my jobs was to deliver the prayer at the opening football game. And uh, there happened to be a number of people there who weren't Christians. And the school officials told me, no, whatever you do, don't pray in the name of Jesus mm. because it will offend people. And they threatened me. They said, if you do, you'll lose your position as student council president. Wow. So I had to think about that for about 30 seconds. I rationalized, <laughs> well, I don't want to lose my position yeah. and my influence for Christ, blah, blah, blah. And then I thought, you know, I've just given my life to the ministry. If I compromise on this, where will it stop? So when the time came for me to pray, I ended my prayer, and in the loudest voice I could, I said, and I pray this in the name of the one who came and died and rose again, that we can have eternal life, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Did you get thrown off the student government? No, it was an empty threat. I didn't really? get taken off at all. But I tell you, Mike, that's the thing we all have to settle in our life. Are we living for the approval of others, or are we living for the approval of God? When there's conflict, whether it's with coworkers or family members or friends and they have strong opinions and they get angry because you don't share them, what are some lessons that we can learn how to be courageous 
but compassionate within the midst of that. Jesus always illustrated for us that the real goal is not to win an argument, but to win the person hmm. to faith in Him. And I think we can be kind and gracious without giving an inch on what we believe. And again, our authority comes not from a political party, it comes from the Word of God. And when we're standing on the Word of God, we know we can have great confidence. It doesn't matter what people think. And look, I mean, I was with yesterday with the vice president. I was in Iowa helping the campaign. You know the line that got the biggest applause both from the vice president and the president last night in Iowa is when they took a strong stand for life. Mm -hmm. I mean, every other Democrat is a barbarian when it comes to this issue of life. We have a president who's standing on the right side, not just of history, but the right side of God. That's not politics. That is the Bible. And I really, I got to tell you, it's one of the things I appreciate most about the president. His pro-life position is not philosophical or political. It is honest, genuine, and he's actually done more than any other president. That's been evident. Thank you for being here. Oh, Thank you for your book. I think it'll help us all to be more courageous. That's the name of the book, Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. It is already available on Amazon. And by the way, be sure to watch his show, Pathway to Victory, because you can watch it right here on TBN. Also, you can see it online at ptv.org. Also, Dr. Jeffress is on Facebook at Dr. Jeffress and Twitter at Robert Jeffress. Now, speaking of courage, let's go back to our very courageous announcer, Shonda Pierce, who will tell us what we have coming up next. Thank you, Governor. Next, country music star John Conley tells And welcome back. I'm sure many of you remember our trip to the Musicians Hall of Fame here in Nashville a few months ago. I tell everyone coming to Nashville, don't miss this wonderful music experience. It's great. Well, that great experience is up for the USA Today 10 Best Contests for Music Museums. I want to encourage you to support Joe Chambers and the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum. All you got to do is visit 10best.com slash awards slash travel. Click on Best Music Museum, cast your vote. I think it's time to give musicians a little love, so do it today. 10best.com slash awards slash travel and click on Best Music Museum. The contest closes February 14th, so don't mess around. Get busy and get it done. Well, back in 1978, my next guest became a country music star with his chart-topping hit called Rose Colored Glasses. Over his 40-year career, his signature voice produced hits like Lady Lay Down, Backside of 30, and I'm Only In It For The Love. He's been a member of the Grand Ole Opry since 1981. Please welcome my friend John Conley. John, Thank great you. to have you on the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you, folks. Thank you. John, one of the things that you are beloved for is having a very distinct voice. You know, there's a few guys in country music, George Jones, as soon as you heard him, you knew that was George Jones. Exactly. You've I, got that kind of voice. I am blessed by that. It's nothing, it's not my fault. It's nothing <laughs> I did, but it is a blessing from God and it serves me well and it gets mentioned more than just about anything else about my career. 
You grew up in Kentucky. Right. Uh, did you sing as a kid? Uh, music was the first thing I was attracted to as a hobby. Yeah. Started taking guitar lessons when I was nine, ten years old and, uh, and fell in love with it and have done it ever since. It was never my intention to make a career out of it. I only ended up in Nashville because I got a new job at a radio station here and uh, at WLAC. That's the only reason I moved to Nashville and it eventually worked into uh, being able to turn the hobby into a career. Was there a particular artist or maybe a program or something that influenced you when you were young and you were formulating your own style? Ray Charles was my favorite all-time artist, still is. Huh. I listened probably to more R&B growing up yeah. than anything else. I didn't like the bubblegum rock and roll, I, you know, but the, yeah. the R&B, the Motown sound, I love that. I love that too, and, I totally yeah. get it. And, and, and then working at WLAC, the home of John R. Huh. John R, way down south in Dixie. Uh, Hoss <laughs> Allen and so many great uh, R&B folks. Yeah. I, I, that was another influence on the way I ended up singing. But when did you say, okay, but my career is going to be country music? Well, uh, you know, on, on my way to work at the at the uh, R&B station and the rock and roll station, <laughs> I was listening to country music uh, on the other station here in town. And it just turns out that that's what uh, I was attracted to. I love the lyric of country and the melodies and so forth. And so it was just natural for me to go that direction. When you got started and had the big hit back in 1978, did you see this as a career that would take you four and five decades beyond? My goal, uh, to, I had two goals when I started this. One is to have longevity. Uh -huh. The other was to create a body of work and we've accomplished both. But I, I didn't quit my day job at the radio station until Rose Colored Glasses looked like it was gonna keep on going up the chart. <laughs> we had a couple of releases prior to that that didn't make it yeah. and uh, for two years, but I kept the day job. Well, I'm glad you kept it then, but I'm so glad that you made it into a career that all of us have been able to enjoy for all these many years. Thank you. Uh, John Conley is always putting out music, and if you wanna get your copy of John Conley's Classics, Classics 2 and Classics 3, I guess if he ever does another one, it'll be Classics 4, uh, <laughs> as well as getting his touring schedule, because he's on the road all the time, and a wonderful, wonderful person to see in person. Go to johnconley.com. By the way, after the show, go to huckabee.tv. We got a little special performance of John singing Jesus, take a hold, and you will thank me, I promise. Now, after the break, John is going to sing his signature hit, Rose-Colored Glasses, and I get the honor of accompanying him on bass. We'll be back in 60 seconds. perform with the backing of Trey Corley and the Music City Connection along with Mike Huckabee on bass is John Conley. Best. But these roads 
good times, good lines, the ones I used to hear when I held you. And they keep me from feeling so cheated, defeated, when reflections in your eyes show me a fool. right here and those right there <laughs> thank you folks thank you thank you